space outside time lies a mystical realm of sound and vision. A wondrous civilization. Where good and evil struggle to possess the dark crystal. It's time to turn out the lights, grab some popcorn, and watch some horrible horror movies. This is the Terrible Terror Podcast. Each episode, I delve in the world of terrible horror movies. Why do I do it? Well, I can't really explain it, but I love these horrible movies. If you've made a horror movie on your phone, or made your own special effects MacGyver style, please send it my way. Now, what do you get when you take a wonderful fantasy world and add some fucked up Jim Henson puppets while you get the Dark Crystal? Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Terrible Terror Podcast. And I know some of you might be saying, well, what the fuck is going on? Uh, And these movies haven't been completely terrible or necessarily horror movies. But yes, we're finishing up this whole theme of movies that freaked me out when I was a kid. Now, this is one that I've wanted to talk about for a while, but I really couldn't find the place to do it. And honestly, this is the best place that I can possibly think of actually doing this. See, this is probably one of the films that gave me some of the greatest nightmares I had as a kid. Now, I had a choice between two films, really. And they're both not horror movies, like, at all. Like, there are aspects of this movie that are completely uh, scary, I think, for young kids. And especially as big of a wuss as I was as a kid, uh, it's definitely scary. Now, the other movie that I had in mind, which I also think you guys should go out and see, and that is available right now on Amazon Prime, is The Last Unicorn. Now, that one, not necessarily as scary as this, because there's some, you know, fantasy elements throughout. And it's a Rankin-Bass animated film. You know, the guys that made the animated Hobbit film. But in that film, like, the big things were really only two really big creatures, I guess you would say. One big scene and one creature that kind of shows up throughout the film. Uh, And then 
some of the stuff, I mean, Christopher Lee's in it, and that's scary enough. Uh, but honestly, when I weighed the two out, I was like, okay, well, what really got me? And I really had to think about it. And it turns out that the Dark Crystal just kind of still sticks with me. And even re-watching this film again, just to do this podcast to get everything that I need for it, I remembered those feelings as a kid when I saw certain puppets, like, and everything in this film, except for some of the, like, animated overlay type things that they do, it is fucking, like, practical puppets, and it's amazing. Uh, and I will know why now I was so scared of some of this shit when I was a little kid. And with The Last Unicorn, the two things that really got me were the Red Bull, uh, if you haven't seen it before, again, please go see that movie because it's fantastic. But uh, the Red Bull, which is kind of the creature antagonist, uh, I would say Christopher Lee's, uh, you know, the king that he plays. I can't remember the name of the king off the top of my head. Um, and then uh, the scene with the harpy and with the traveling magician, the old woman, um, and where she meets Smendrick. That always like scared the crap out of me, not just because of the harpy. But because of all the imagery they use, the manticore, the giant snake, all that stuff, like it really stuck with me. But it was like fantastical at the same time. So it's not as bad as, you know, when I've recently watched the film again, it's not as bad as I remember it. But here, there are just some things that like as a like a young kid, how did it not fuck me up more? Um, they really go all out. It is, this is a combined effort, combined directing effort between Jim Henson and Frank Oz. Uh, you know, God rest his soul, Jim Henson is, you know, him and Mr. Rogers really have a special place in my heart. And Frank Oz is still with us and still does things. And a lot of people, if you haven't seen a lot of the Muppet stuff, or you don't really have a place to put on for Frank Oz right away, um... You would probably best know him as Yoda, the voice of Yoda, and he's also the puppeter of Yoda in the Star Wars films from Empire Strikes Back, basically on. Um, and, you know, he's also Miss Piggy, which is the other thing that you might remember him from uh, if you don't know. But this is the first, like, I think the first directing foray for him, and so Jim kind of helped him with it. But I think they really split, like, the 50-50 directing, you know, duties on this film. Don't totally quote me for that, but it is quite amazing what they were able to create with this film. Now, for those that haven't seen it, it is not really available streaming in many places. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, you can rent it from Amazon Prime. You can rent it from YouTube. You can rent it from iTunes. And like I said, you can still find it on YouTube. It's just in that weird, funky way. Um... And uh, I happily own multiple copies of this movie. So I have my old VHS copy. I have my old tape copy, my other VHS copy that was recorded from HBO back in the day that my parents did. Uh, and then I have DVD and Blu-ray of this film. So I love this movie. I am unabashedly going to say I love this movie. Uh, and I just want to go through it and kind of like... Like with a bonus episode for The Creature from the Black Lagoon, right? That was a very, you know, I love this film. I, I know I love this film, but we're still going to talk about it anyway. And I'm still going to do the same thing with this film here. 
uh, try to be a little more subjective. I'm going to give it the same treatment I give every other film, but it's hard to call this the Terrible Terror Podcast when I'm talking about a film like this that I know and love so much. Now, there are terrible horror film movies that I love so much as well, but this is one of those films where, even as an adult, the child in me comes out and is amazed at how magical it is uh, and how wonderful it is and makes me just want to gush and have a smile on my face the entire time, just like if I'm watching The Creature from the Black Lagoon or Dracula or The Mummy or any of those old Universal Monster movies. Even old Godzilla, my face still fucking smiles watching, you know, Godzilla versus Rodan or Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Those films are so ingrained in my childhood, and I know that they're cheesy, but they're so wonderful at the same time. So I do have nostalgia filters when I look at this film again, but I understand that it does have some flaws. Um, and does it you know, hold up. That's the one thing that I want to see right now. Try to get rid of everything that I love about this film and everything that just in terms of me being a kid and feel like I'm again, you know, seven years old sitting in front of the TV. I mean, it came out in 1983, so I didn't see this theatrically. I saw it when it finally came, when it was being constantly played on TV, you know. Growing up, we had HBO and we had the Disney Channel, and since this was a Jim Henson production, it probably landed more on the Disney Channel than anything else. That's where I saw a lot of these old, you know, the old Rankin-Bass type films, as well as a lot of these old kids' films that came out when I was a little bit too young to be going to the movie theaters. But, it's movies that, like... See, these are weird movies where I don't remember if it was that my parents were like, hey... This is a kid's film, or they really love this film as a an adult, thinking that, hey, this is going to be great for the kids and would show us. Um, and just like, you know, say like my cousin's kids where they get addicted. There was a time where, you know, his first daughter was addicted to Finding Dory or Finding Nemo. I'm sorry. And they just want to play it all the time. You know, I, you always hear that with, with parents, with kids. They, they get attached to something and they have to constantly watch it. And I think this is one of those things where... This was one of those films that once my sister and I saw it, we always asked to see it. And we've kind of forced other people in my family probably to watch it with us, too. Um, so it's just amazing. You know, this is a movie like Labyrinth, right? Jim Henson had a set of films that just as a child, it knocked you out of the park. And Labyrinth is one of them, but... You know, as scary as David Bowie's cod piece is in that movie, it's not truly scary. Like, nothing really bothered me, well, except for the bog of never-ending stench. Um, and then he had The Dark Crystal, and then, you know, he had the Muppet movie, and Muppets Take Manhattan, and Muppets... You know, he had a lot of fucking Muppet movies. Um, and The Witches. You know, those are the films that really stayed with me as a kid, and... That was probably the last of, I'd say, the Jim Henson, Jim Henson movies that you'd see for a long time uh, until, you know, his unfortunate passing. Uh, and it sucks that we don't, you know, we don't have the magic of, I don't want to say like his son and the Jim Henson company still doesn't have magic because they do. But there was just something about him, and, that, and that's why I say him and Mr. Rogers are so important to me. Like, I know, here I am, like, gushing about Mr. Rogers, but it's true. Both of them had this magic eye for children and the youth. And he had it through this magical world and these these magical characters that he created. And 
they always had a like a hint of adultism with it, and that's kind of maybe a weird word or weird way of saying it. But he didn't coddle the youth's hand, and it's really shown, I think, in this film, uh, which. If I remember correctly, it's not the biggest theatrical, like, box office smash, but it has a strong place in a lot of people's hearts. And, and of course, I'm included in this mix, but he really had a knack for being like, look, I'm going to create this world. I'm going to create this fantasy world, and I'm not going to just make it childlike. It's not going to be that type of film where it's, strictly only for kids, you know, and it's going to be goofy and whatever, and we're going to teach a couple things, and that's going to be... No, it is a... It is still a kid's fantasy film, because fuck puppets, right? But he really goes all out in some of the, the set pieces and the designs of these characters. They're truly scary, and it's truly disgusting, and it's truly, you know... I would expect this stuff to be in a more adult-style movie. You know, something that would be rated PG-13, possibly. I mean, there's no blood, there's no cursing, though it would be really funny to hear one of the characters, you know, all of a sudden be fuckity-fuck-fuck-fuck-fuck. But it's, it's absolutely amazing that he was able to take these worlds and still put something in it that's for both the adults and the kids, but he didn't handhold the kids. And just like Mr. Rogers knew that every kid in their own way was special, Jim Henson realized that every kid could understand what's going on. Mr. Rogers would have episodes where he would talk about things that nobody else really talked about, things like divorce, where you'd have Jim Henson here fucking with your mind as a young kid. So I hold both of these guys in huge regard, and you know what, without blubbering a lot more and getting a lot more uh, just going on to this and start talking about my childhood of uh, having to go to the zoo with Mr. Rogers and shit like that, uh, why don't we get into the film? Now... There aren't a whole lot of clips um, because I feel like some of them are really long and uh, some of them where I wanted to show it was like really short stuff. So and and that's something that I'm going to talk about a little later towards the end of the film um, really comes down to the dialogue and the way the script is written. Uh, like a lot of films and a lot of kids films, I think at the same time. Uh, there are big portions which are very important, and then there's things where it's like, yeah, it's more reflective, and the characters are just kind of, I guess I'm just going to say now, <laughs> the characters are more like saying what they're thinking, or telling the audience what they're thinking, and when I'm watching the film, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's a good thing, and then when I come back to do the cuts for the audio, I look at it, and I'm like, well, you know what, it's not really that important for me to cut this 10 second set of audio, or this thing, just because he says, you know, I'm just feeling sad, because I just don't know what to do, and then that's it, it goes on, and it's just like, okay, do you really need to do that, you know, um, you don't, honestly, uh, so, it's just, uh, it's not as many as we'd get, and that's fine, I think that still makes... For a fine episode, you know, I'm not trying to overload episodes with clips either, so why don't we just start the movie with how it begins itself, with the narrator uh, setting the world and explaining why this desolate wasteland looks like it does. Another world, another time, in the age of wonder. 
A thousand years ago, this land was green and good, until the crystal cracked. For a single piece was lost, a shard of the crystal. Then strife began, and two new races appeared, the cruel Skeksis, the gentle mystics. Here in the castle of the crystal, the Skeksis took control. the Skeksis gather in the sacred chamber where the crystal hangs above a shaft of air and fire. The Skeksis with their hard and twisted bodies, their harsh and twisted wills. For a thousand years they have ruled, yet now there are only ten. A dying race ruled by a dying emperor imprisoned within themselves in a dying land. Today, once more, they gather at the crystal as the first sun climbs to its peak. For this is the way of the Skeksis. As they ravage the land, so too they learn to draw new life from the sun. Today, once more, they will replenish themselves, cheat death again, through the power of their source, their treasure, their fate, the dark crystal. So first thing I want to say is that the sets that are used in this film are absolutely beautiful, okay? Not just the practical effects, that's not just the main thing that we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about how wonderful these sets are. There's a lot of hand-painted pieces that you can see with the backgrounds, the way they're set up, and there's a lot of models where they use these sets that are just you know, everything's, in, of course, in a soundstage. There's not really going to be much that's kind of out in the open. There are a couple of shots like that, which seem that way. They totally could still be in a soundstage, and I'd totally be amazed. I mean, when you look at a lot of these, like, set pieces that they do, there are a lot of creatures moving. There's a lot of uh, shrubbery, and it's absolutely amazing. They created this world that is absolutely beautiful with the exception of, well, the castle. The castle itself is really cool looking. I'm not saying it's not beautiful, but this is a wasteland that we open up to as we're being narrated as to the world of Thra. And that's another thing here is that there aren't a lot of things that are actually said in the movie that are well, explanations of everything. Like when we get to the ending of the film, there's a lot more that you don't get. Like, within the context of the movie it's fine but it seems like it's a little short like there's got to be more to it and there's got to be more to it here but the problem is is that you're restrained within a movie and there's a lot of other things that have been written after this that have gone more into depth of the world and the experiences and people out there have kind of combined it into descriptions and summaries of what's going on so if i miss something that I'm just going by what the movie tells me. So if we're missing something, like, you don't know what this world is called. I only see it because, hell, I decided to do a recap on Wikipedia, and there you go. First thing it tells you, the world of Thra. And 
you don't get that from the film. Nobody ever says it. Nobody ever says what the castle is called. Nobody says anything except for the Dark Crystal, right? You know that's there. And you know that there are basically two sides. There's a good side and a bad side. When the crystal split, all of a sudden the Skeksis emerged and the Mystics emerged. Now, the Skeksis themselves, they're kind of bird-like. They look like vultures is pretty much the best way that I can kind of, like, you know, or I guess maybe you can even call them ostriches because I didn't see any fucking wings. But the beaks that they have, they're very bird-like and they're very predatory looking. So that's why I'd kind of leave it around the vulture style. Now, the Mystics, who are the other race that are on the planet... They're very, I don't know, like, they kind of look like a sloth. Like, not truly, like, fully a sloth. They're, they don't really represent any type of animal, but they're the good guys of the film, right? At least that's what you know. Now, we get this opening scene where they're all inside the throne room. They're all huddled around the crystal. The sun hits the crystal, and then all of them like basically get zapped in the eyes, and I guess that gives them the energy that they need. So they feed, and they watch over the dark crystal. Once we see that the light's been shot in their eyes from the dark crystal and the sun, we're taken over, and we get to meet the mystics. A thousand years ago, the crystal cracked. And here, far from the castle... The race of mystics came to live in a dream of peace. Their ways were the gentle ways of natural wizards. Yet now there are only ten. A dying race, numbly rehearsing the ancient ways in a blur of forgetfulness. But today, the ritual gives no comfort. Today, the wisest of the mystics lies dying. Today, they summon the one who must save them. So the mystics don't really talk a whole lot. They tend to just chant like you hear them at the end of this. Though the grand mystic, or whatever you want to call it, the guy that's dying, the high mystic, see... We don't really get to know the names of many of the characters in this film that aren't the main characters or the ones that they're focused on. Well, with the exception of one. Um, see, we do get the names of every type of Skeksis and every type of Mystic at the end of the film during the credits because they basically give you the names of the puppeteers who are inside all the different suits right at the end of the film. So somebody like Frank Oz, for example, he does multiple puppets in this as well as Jim Henson. You know, and they actually give you the name of the character that they played. And that's the only way that we really know who is who. And it's actually kind of funny because they are, like, named in conventions that show what their lifestyle is. So, for example, we have the Skeksis, right? The bad guys. And the names that they have for each of the characters is Chamberlain, General, High Priest, Scientist, Gourmand, Ornamentalist, Historian, Slave Master, Treasurer, and there's also the Emperor who's dying. And then when you have the Mystics, you've got basically things like Healer, Chanter, Hunter, Weaver, Urza, Cook, Numerologist, Scribe, Alchemist. So you have these, like, you basically have, like, the people of the city, right? The guys that live in the castle, and then the, and that's the, the ranks that they would have within that Society, And then you have the mystics, which are kind of like the 
if you're going to like have to split hairs with this, I would consider the mystic to be like the old school Native Americans, right? They live off the land. They, you know, uh, live, <laughs> they live inside the mountain. Not all Native Americans do that. But honestly, they have old ways. They, they know spells and stuff. And they, even the way that they introduce them, you see them drawing on the ground in sand. Like, that is a straight up, like, Native American, like, stereotype thing that I can think of when you see it. And then when you look at the Skeksis, who are the evil brooding guys, they're the city folk, right? They are the ones that have been impeding upon the land. They don't live with nature. They basically use science and everything else. And so they're modern society. So you have uh, nature versus modern society is what you currently have with modern society being the bad people of the film. So we learn that the high mystic, he's dying. And when everybody starts doing their little moaning thing that they do or the calling, we meet our hero of the film, Jen the Gelfling. In the valley of the mystics, there lives a Gelfling, Jen. The Skeksis killed his family, destroyed his clan. Only Jen survived to be raised by the wisest of the mystics. But there is a prophecy. A thousand years have passed, and now once more the world must undergo a time of testing. Now it must be healed, or pass forever into the rule of evil. At this time, Jen is the chosen one. Today, Jen's pipe gives no comfort, for today his master lies dying, and a journey must begin. Journey of Jen. Okay, so here is Jen. We meet him inside of a pond, and he's fucking naked. Why do we have a naked fucking puppet out here? Like, what was the point? Oh, well, he was bathing, okay? And he decided, hey, I'm just going to play my flute out here, because uh, nobody's going to possibly see me, and nobody's going to need me to come. Oh, shit, here's moaning in the distance. And then he goes over to his, you know, the head mystic, or the high mystic, or whatever you want the fuck you want to call him, and he decides to, on his deathbed, tell him the importance of him, and what the importance of all the Gelflings has been. Master? At the time when three sons... Master, what's wrong? You are in danger, Gilfling. And I must leave you. Leave me? Mm. Master, no. Gilfling, I have told you of the Skeksis. The Skeksis killed my mother and father. The story runs deeper than you know, and you are part of it. I don't understand. The Skeksis will vow to destroy you. Oh, the prophecy says you must find the shard. The crystal shard. The crystal shard? To save our world, Gilfling, you must find the shard. 
before the three sons meet. If not, Skeksis rule forever. Where is it? Ogre holds the shard. Follow the greater sun for a day to the home of Ogre. There, she knows all the secrets. Ogre, follow the greater sun. But master, I'm only a gelfling. I should have told you these things long ago. Now it is up to you. <clears throat> Remember me, Jen. We may meet in another life. <clears throat> but not again in this one. Okay, so this guy, this high mystic decided, hey, you know what? I'm dying. So this is the perfect moment in time for me to actually finally tell you something about yourself and tell you what you need to do. I've told you nothing all of this time except for, well, you know, he's raised him. I'll give him that. He's also taught him how to read and write. Okay, I'll give you that. He's also taught him numbers. Okay, okay, okay. He did teach him a lot of shit, okay? But at the same time, if he's going to be like the great savior of everything, why do you tell him now? Are you just afraid that things are going to happen? especially since something coming up that we'll learn in a bit called the Great Conjunction is coming and that he must do this by the time that that happens. Hey, guess what? That's only a couple fucking days away, at least from what it seems and how this world and how this, like, universe and time travels here. He's got to learn all this shit in a couple of days. That's how much preparation time you gave him. Basically, you said, hey, I'm dying. I fucked up. Fuck you. Save the world. Like... (laughs) Come on, man. And then at the same time, like, do we really need another children's story that has dying parents? Like, his whole, this one, it's it's even worse. It's not just that his parents are dead. It's that the whole fucking race is gone. He is the last of his kind, and you expect him to fulfill some sort of fucking prophecy? Like, that's what his whole duty is? Oh, hey, guess what? You're the chosen one. You're the last of your kind. Good luck, you know, repopulating the society that you once had before. Because it, guess what? It's you. Unless you can fucking jizz into a cup and that becomes a couple of kids. You're fucked after you save us. But please, save us. Make sure that everything's okay. But you know what? I'm not going to be here anymore. So, (laughs) guess what? I'm going to tell you all this now. So, it's kind of messed up. And... As he's dying, we also learn at the same time that the Emperor over on the Skeksis side is also dying. Now, I'm not going to talk about this right away, but we're going to discuss it a little bit after you hear about the death of the Emperor. He's not dead yet, my Lord Chamberlain. Ah, 
Okay, so there are two things that I kind of don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to really like express how I feel. Like, okay, so I want to talk about the Skeksis and the Mystics, right? They're split into two, and as we find out here, they're connected, right? Because as this Emperor is dying, so is the Mystic. Now, you may not get that right away, and you may not put the two and two together, but I'm going to put them together for you right now. Because it's kind of easy to see. When you're younger, you're just like, oh, maybe not. But you do see something later on in the film that confirms this. Now, with the way that this is done, I don't know which society necessarily is better. See, before the Emperor dies, all the Skeksis basically fill the room, and Chamberlain tries to steal the staff from the dying emperor before he goes and then eventually he goes but they're all in the room when he dies granted it's out of greed but they're all there meanwhile with the mystics they're nowhere to be fucking found like the only person that's in the room when the fucking grand mystic dies is jen and jen's learning about all the like shit that he has to do but there's no other mystics like they're just letting him go in peace is that what it is is just like a cultural thing but honestly wouldn't you want to be surrounded by your I guess your race or your family or whatever. Like, if there's only 10 left of you, wouldn't you want to be surrounded by the people that you've spent most of your life with? I mean, all these mystics hang out together with each other all day, fucking aww-ing all the goddamn time, right? And the Skeksis, they're a very predatory type of race. Like, at least they're there when he dies, even if their only purpose is to steal the fucking crown from him. Well, his scepter, okay? He has a scepter in his deathbed. The effect where the Emperor crumples himself, like, after he dies, like, his face starts, like, folding in on itself and turns to dust. Meanwhile, with the High Priest guy, or uh, High Mystic, whatever the fuck you want to call his name, the asshole that's on his deathbed that tells Jen he's the fucking savior of everything, okay? That guy, like, when he dies, he just disappears into the ether and floats away. And so you get... Two deaths happening exactly the same time. So it's pretty obvious, at least to an older viewer, that these two races are connected in some way, shape, or form. They both showed up at the same time as we were told when the crystal cracked. It just happened to be that the Skeksis, they control the dark crystal with the crack in it. And we have the Mystics that control, I don't know what, they they're in the nature. But yet they don't seem to ever communicate with each other or like they're not at war with each other. All we know is that the Skeksis are evil and they've done evil things where the mystics haven't done shit. Like there's no talk of anything that they've done. Like they haven't tried to stop the Skeksis from anything. So honestly, who really is the bigger asshole in this situation here? The race that is enslaving everybody or the race that doesn't do anything to stop the enslavement? I don't know. So, over in Skeksiland, the Emperor has now died. And they decide that now it's time for us to determine who is going to be the next Emperor. And somebody needs to step up and just fucking take it. And they all are sitting around discussing who should it be. And certain people have ideas of what parts of, uh, I guess, the society should be the one to take over. Till eventually, we find out that two are going to fight for the right to be Emperor in a trial by stone. Emperor, he's dead. 
Which one of us will be the new emperor? Oh, yes. My lord Chamberlain, time to choose an emperor. Yes, it should be me. Yes. Lord Dame, I must rule. You, you should be the emperor. There's going to be a fight. It's time to make my move. It's me. Chamberlain, no! Wait, stop! You can't! Get back, spithead! Huh? Chamberlain! Stay down my chapter! Huh? I'm coming! Hmm? Hmm. Trial by stone. Trial by stone! So when they grabbed the swords, I was like, I remember as a kid, I was like, oh yeah, we're going to see some sword fighting. This is going to be fucking fantastic. And then it turns out Trial by Stone is hacking at a giant stone. Like, that's how they decided to settle their dispute. And they literally take turns whacking these giant scimitars against this block of stone. And first, General, who is the guy that looks like Keith Richards on a really bad bender, uh, is going against Chamberlain, uh, and he goes first. And Chamberlain kind of looks like a very skinny John Travolta with a beak. Okay, so first... General goes, he swings the, his scimitar, and it hits, and it causes sparks. It is a weak-as-fuck hit, okay? Like, he doesn't look like he put that much into it, but everybody fucking cheers. And I'm like, okay, so th- that's great. I guess he's got the first hit. Everybody's happy with the amount of power he put behind it. So Chamberlain goes, and Chamberlain is even weaker than his fucking hit. And everybody gets super excited about Chamberlain's hit. Like, look, these two, they suck. And these are going to be your emperors? Fuck that. Give me the fucking thing. I'll fucking... Oh. And then General comes by, gets hella pissed, summons all his inner Captain Diabetes strength, and fucking destroys the shit while he chops the top of the stone off. And so he is officially labeled as emperor. Now, what they decide to do in this case is they have to have some retribution against Chamberlain because he decided to challenge General for the stone. Well, actually, General challenged Chamberlain, right? It wasn't Chamberlain. He just said, this is the trial that we're going to do because I guess he thought he would win that one. But honestly, wouldn't you have rather just fought? But then you don't have many of your kind left. So, I guess... Chopping at a piece of stone is the way to go? I Fuck if I know. So they decide that the best way to handle the situation is to fucking banish him. Like, kick him out. And how do you banish somebody in this world of Skeksis? Why, you fucking strip him of all his clothes and leave him as a naked fucking bird over in the... This is the second fucking naked puppet I've seen in this fucking movie. Why do I need to have so many goddamn naked puppets? Please tell me why... 
Jim, Jim, Frank, come on. Seriously, like, you could have at least left him with a shred of his dignity, like, given him a little something. And so they completely take all of his clothing off and tell him that he has to leave. Now, over at the Mystic Camp, and I'm cutting back a little bit here, uh, they had a ceremony, and I guess that's better than what they did to, you know, poor Chamberlain over here, and that they had to have a fight for who the next emperor was going to be. But they don't really have an idea of who's the next high mystic. They basically kind of send him on his way with his things and say that he's going to watch over Jen at some point, and Jen is sent on his adventure. Back over with the Skeksis, they get a calling as they're telling, you know, Chamberlain, you need to get the fuck out of here, because you're banished because you suck, and you can't fucking destroy a piece of stone. They get a call from the Dark Crystal, and the Dark Crystal itself shows them the Gelfling. Basically, Jen running through the mountains, and they didn't even know that one of them was still alive. So that freaks everybody out, and they decide that they need to track down this guy, and they summon the Gartham. Now, the Gartham are one of the things, as a kid, that fucked me up. Okay? These things are fucking amazing. Up close, and some of the later shots, okay, it looks a little silly when they're out and about, but when they move, and just the way, they're these like big giant beetle crab things, right? Huge giant shells in the back, and a small little head, but a giant fucking claw up front, and a bunch of like dangling mandibles. Now, when they're constantly moving, it doesn't seem so bad, but when you see them kind of stand still, it looks a little cheesy. But... What they were able to create with these Garthams are fucking nuts. Like, you don't see this shit. This is just a fucking Jim Henson production. Like, oh my god, like, I'm already amazed at the way that the Skeksis look. Even the naked Skeksis, okay, when Chamberlain was done. The puppet, it looks fantastic. Like, it's great, but... The way that the Gartham look, like just the way that they make them move. See, most of the time, at least with the Skeksis, they're pretty much covered in robes and everything like that. So you don't see a lot of the extra puppets in somebody. But with the Gartham, there's a lot going on besides just the shell. The the face is what you're mostly looking at. And the way that they move when they move down the hallways looks great. It's probably a couple people inside of it. Even the Mystics look pretty good because they have an extra set of arms, the way everything goes, but the mouthing doesn't look great. Now, there is one, maybe two kind of terrible puppets in this movie. Um, and, uh, well, maybe three, maybe three types, okay? The non, like, creature style puppets, like the Gelflings, Jen, and somebody that we're going to meet later on, they're not the best-looking puppets in the world. They didn't really hold up that well. Like, it looks like Michael Jackson, you know, towards the end of his life, where his face barely moves, uh, and he's got way too much wake makeup on, and he's just very, very light brown <laughs> instead of what he used to be. Uh, but no, it's just kind of like he has pl- heavy plastic surgery on his face. It's very stiff in the way that it moves. Um and when you do the sets, because there's somebody that plays like a dressed up version of it when they need to do long shots and shots of him running around, stuff like that. And those are fine. And some of the puppetry when it's, you know, a little bit from a distance and, and some of the stuff, I get it. It's meant to be a little stiff. And this is in the 80s, so, you know, I can give it a little bit of slack. But they don't necessarily hold up compared to the other wonderful puppets. Even some of the just... Basic creatures that are walking around inside the world look 
ten times better than your main character does. So that's a little rough. Um, and then there are the podlings, uh, which we'll learn about more a little later on. But in the scene when he calls for, um, you know, them to bring out the stones, we see the podlings for the first time. They're like, they're slaves. And in that thing, they look, I think they look fine, actually, uh, for what they become, which are the slaves, where they're very, like, sullen-eyed and shrunken-faced and gray hair. They look like, you know... Slaves that had the life force sucked out of them should. So I don't mind those as much, but really, uh, your Gelflings need to look a little better, I guess. Maybe that's right. But anyway, so they find that, you know, there is a Gelfling alive. They're worried about the whole prophecy coming true, and that ends the Skeksis. So Chamberlain, who happened to overhear this, he decides to go out and look for the Gelfling. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's to get into the better graces and to get back into Skeksi society. Um, so the general, who is now the emperor, he sends out the Gartham to go look for Jen. Meanwhile, Jen is traveling through the mountains. He starts to think about what exactly he needs to do, who the hell this Agra person is, how he's going to get to them. And then all of a sudden he runs into a trap uh, of some weird, like, vines i guess like lifelike vines that trap him and we get to meet agra for the very first time are you a gelfling yes my name is Jen. The Gelfling all dead. Gotham kill them all. You can't be Gelfling. You look like Gelfling. Smell like Gelfling. Maybe you are Gelfling. I'm looking for Augra. <clears throat> Who sent you? My master. Wisest of the mystics. Where is he? Around here? He's dead. Could be anywhere then. Are you Agra? Are you afraid of me? Think I'm going to eat you? Hmm? What do you want of me? A shard. A crystal shard. That's all you want? A crystal shard? <laughs> Drop him! So, if the Gartham were the first part of my nightmares, and are those beetle things still, like, they, they, I just remember how disturbing they were, the introduction of Agra is the other thing that scared me to living hell as a kid. Because the very first, the very first thing when you see her is, one, it's a jump scare for little kids, because it comes out of nowhere. He's hung up there in the vines, then all of a sudden, this hand with an eyeball in it fucking pops into screen with her yelling some nonsensical language. And then you get to gaze upon the face of Agra when she takes that eyeball and puts it right back into her face. She puts it in her face. You see her insert the eyeball. I mean, it's not like completely gory and graphic or anything like that, but she takes it as she's looking at him and she shows him the eyeball. That's how she sees him for the first time. And then she takes it and she sticks it into her eye socket. And then we get to have the full look of her and she's like, 
if the Crypt Keeper and fucking Miss Piggy had a baby with giant fucking tits and nipples. It is fantastic. It is a good, disgusting looking puppet. But my god, is that a scary son of a bitch. And her voice, the voice actress that does her does such a fantastic job that she is one of my favorite characters in this film because truly she reminds me of a Miss Piggy. Now, she is puppeteered by Frank Oz, so maybe in the way that she moves and some of the the way that he does the things, it makes sense that it kind of is reminiscent of that. And that's also the attitude that she has. She kind of has a, you know, no-guff type of attitude going on here. But in general, it is just a scary sight to see when you see her. And she's supposed to be helping Jen? Like, it seems like she's one of those characters that shouldn't even be, like... Like tricking him in a trickster type of way. Something, and I have to compare this back to The Last Unicorn, because I think these are two characters that are similar but completely different, right? Because they teach the main character something, and at the same time, they allow them to continue their journey in different ways. And Mommy Fortuna is the one that you run into in The Last Unicorn. And she is definitely the trickster type, right? Because she captures her. And she wants to use her because that's her legacy, is the fact that she was able to capture these two mythical creatures. And even though she teaches her a lot, she accepts the fate that she gets to her. And she really just wants to maintain the control that she has. Here we have Agra. And Agra is very gruff. And she knows things she's very wise and she teaches jen some stuff especially when she talks about the great conjunction and yet at the same time she could be one of the ones to never show up again but we do see her throughout the film because she becomes a very pivotal character in fact why don't we have her talk to us about what the great conjunction actually is what's it for is that what you want to know you want to know what this is all about? Is that it, Gautlin? You don't know? You've never looked at the heavens. Everything in the heavens is here, moving as the heavens move. This is how to know when. That's what. Suns, moons, stars, yes, the angle of eternity. That's how I know it's coming. How else can I make the prediction? A thousand years ago, there was a great conjunction. I was there. Three suns lined up. That's when the crystal cracked. That's when the Skeksis appeared. And the mystics. Another great conjunction coming up. Anything could happen. The whole world might burn up. End of Ogre. <laughs> Better have your shard before that, carefully. Now, ask what the Great Conjunction is. What's the Great Conjunction? What's the Great Conjunction? You tell me. The Great Conjunction is the end of the world. Oh, the beginning? Huh. End, begin, all the same. Big change. Sometimes good. Huh. Sometimes bad. Ah, there it is. So, the whole place that she has here is another fantastic set. 
Like, the mountain ranges that they had, they looked pretty good, but it's obviously that, you know, it's not shot outside, even though there are some sweeping shots of, like, the land. It seems like maybe they filmed this in part maybe in, like, New Zealand or something like that, because I could have sworn I saw, like, a hobbit hole around there. But nonetheless, this inside of her, like, lair, I guess you can call it, or home, it is just huge and it's got this giant set of moving planets in the center of it. And it's not really planets, it's the sun. And it's basically lining up. You see at one point, all the suns line up when she starts talking about the Great Conjunction and what exactly it is. And you have this really, like, magical set that they put together. I mean, it is huge. You can rewind this scene and play it again and see different pieces of the structure just move and how they all move independently. It's nuts. Like, nowadays, this would all be done in CGI, and you would see all the different moving pieces, and it would be kind of cool because you could get little references or something. But to imagine that somebody built this. They spent their time to make this set, and it looks as wondrous as it does. And even watching Agra move through the set, you can tell when it's a person that's inside of the costume, and you can tell when it's being puppeteered. And... Honestly, she's a gross fucking character. I hate walking, watching her walk around. I hate looking at her when she goes to sit down every time she does. He puts her hands on her knees and her giant boobs get in the way. You know, it is, it's hard to look at her face, but it honestly is a great concept character at the same time. She's just, she's perfectly scary enough for both the uh, protagonist of the film and for the kids that are watching this at the same time. So she goes and she grabs the shards that she has and she just throws them all on the ground. And that's when Jen's got to decide which one is the right one that he needs to take to help him do whatever he needs to do with it with the dark crystal. Agra, what do I do with the shard? Heal the dark crystal. But how? Questions, questions, too many questions. You want a shard? Here. Which one is it? Don't know. Don't know. Ha! Listen, Gelfling. There is much to be learned. And you have no time. These three, I'm sure. You've already taken too long, Delfling. Hurry! But how do I choose? You know, as much as I talk shit about the way that Agra looks, I do have to say that her voice actor is fucking fantastic. And there's actually a really funny story about it. That Now, you see, originally Frank Oz, I guess, was going to do the whole film himself. He was going to direct the whole thing. And he didn't want to do any of the puppeteering. But then he kind of got coerced into it, and I think that's why him and Jim spent, uh, you know, split the directing duties, or Jim did some of it, and Frank did the other things. But... 
um, they basically tried to hire voice actors to match the the character style. And the original person that was going to be it, uh, she they really liked her voice and her cadence and the way that she did. And she had more experience in dubbing than the other person who eventually got it, Billy Whitelaw. And so they went through, but when they got to the end and they found out that she didn't have a whole lot of looping experience and that she had to reach too far to stay in character, it was decided to actually replace her with Billy, uh, who is this iconic character now. So, and a lot of times they tried to use the original puppeteers to the voice, but like in certain situations, Frank Oz, like he was way too fast for it. And so that's why... It was also difficult trying to get the right voice actors to be the right characters. Like, would in the terms of, um, you know, Chamberlain, for example, the guy that got it finally, he was able to actually match the cadence and speed that they wanted for the character that Frank Oz was putting. Now, with this scene in specifically, uh, when she throws all of them down, like, she just throws those crystals in front of Jen and just like, fuck it, here, you gotta figure it out. And she's supposed to be all-knowing, but at the same time, Like, we have to wonder, how did she actually get this crystal? She knows which one it is. Like, is this a test? Because she says, I was there when the crystal split. And all of a sudden, she's got 20 different crystals in a box. So did she just, like, go grab a bunch of crystals, you know, just so that she could fulfill this prophecy that was supposed to be coming? Hey, I'm going to have a box of them, and the person that's actually going to do it, he's going to know exactly which one he needs to get. That's a big possibility, to be honest with you. But it's just kind of fucked up that she just throws everything out in front of him and says, here, you deal with it. And then he remembers from his training, not necessarily his training, okay, his life and his time spent with the mystics, that there probably is a certain type of hum or whatever they does. That's why he plays the note, and that's why he's able to make the crystal resonate, and he's able to actually choose the right one. Now that he's got the right one, he doesn't know what the fuck he needs to do. And so he tries to ask her what the hell is going on, and then the Gartham attack. And the Gartham break into Agra's place and start tearing everything down, trying to attack Jen. Jen manages to escape. Meanwhile, Agra's back there fighting with the different Gartham. He escapes, but she does not, and Jen looks back and sees that Agra's home has been destroyed. Unbeknownst to him, we see Chamberlain looking at him and following him in the distance. See, one of the things that we didn't see earlier was a crystal bat. And crystal bats are agents of the crystal, basically like the eyes of the crystal that fly around. And it had caught a glimpse of him without Jen actually knowing. Now, Jen, he wanders off into a forest, and he contemplates what exactly he's going to do now that he has this crystal shard. He then gets approached by one of the most lovable and kind of scary creatures in the film, Fizzgig. Now, Fizzgig is basically like a dog, but he's got rows and rows of monstrous fucking teeth. This causes Jen to jump back and he lands inside of a little bog or marsh that's there and kind of starts sinking. At the meantime, somebody comes from the distance and it turns out to be Kira, who happens to be another Gelfling, but a lady gelfling, or a ladyfling, or a gelf eighty. I don't fucking know. If you guys come up with some better terminology for this than what it is, but it's a fucking thing with tits, okay? And she helps them out of the water, and that's when they do some type of weird, like, Vulcan mind melding thing. You, Gelfling, like me? Well, yes. But 
I thought I was the only one. I thought I was. Oh. Here. I'll help you out. The first thing I remember is fire. It's a war, I think. A tree. My mother puts me right inside, and we're... Mother! Mother, the monster! first thing I remember is the kind one. He picks me up, and he's big. He makes the monsters disappear, and I be safe. And I am safe. What's happening? We're dream fasting, sharing our memories. <laughs> I'm having a bath. <laughs> when I was little, I used to get fed by my new mom. She called me Kira. And then bigger. Oh, and Master, you showed me the whole valley stretching out. I thought it went on forever. Kira, watch out! The Gartham! They capture the podlings. My master is family, Sometimes and teacher, it is good. and friend. And I can nearly I can forget the thing that happened. And talk with flowers and all me. the living things. And he shows me numbers and, and things called words. And everywhere I go, I learn the shapes of kindness. I learn from them all, except there's no one here like me. I need to find yes, one other. I love them all, except I need to find. Wait, I want. It's going. It's away. going away. Okay, I guess that's called dream fasting, is what they explained it in the film. Um, and they were basically mind-melding with each other, and she was learning all of his experiences up to this point, and he was learning all of her ex- experiences up to this point as well. So basically, we get backstory for both of these characters at one time, and it's really fucking confusing. Like, okay, if you break it down, he, his family got killed. We know a lot about Jen already, so I'll be very quick with him. But his family got killed by the Skeksis. Uh, he was found by the Mystics. He was raised by them, okay? We have to see another naked fucking puppet uh, when he's getting a bath. But with her, she's a lot more interesting, and I wish that we actually got a little more time with her backstory. But basically, at the same time the Skeksis were going around and killing all the other Gelflings, her family was killed too, but her mom hit her inside of a tree. And then when she was basically, you know, her family was wiped down, then she was rescued by the podlings. And the podlings raised her as one of their own. And so we see scenes of her being raised as a podling, and that's how she learned how to communicate with nature and also learn their languages. So she can speak, I guess, common as well as podling as well as where the fuck these animals speak. So Jen is stuck there in the bog, and Kira uses her magical animal powers to summon some, like, giant piece of shit looking thing like literally it looks like a giant fucking turd but it's truly more like a grub that comes out of the water scares the crap out of him but is able to get him safe onto land and so she decides that she's going to take him back to uh her village to basically meet the other podlings and kind of see where things go from here because hey he's a boy she's a girl there's not a whole lot left with her species besides the two of them Now, one thing I can't believe I forgot to talk about, and I even wrote down a note for it, because I wanted to play the audio, but it wasn't really super interesting. Like, what was interesting is what was happening at the same time. You see, before this whole situation with meeting Kira and everything like that, and he was contemplating what he needs to do next with the shard, uh, he looked into it, and he actually saw random images. And one of the images that you see is of the Skeksis, something that looks like a Skeksis, using a staff to actually destroy the shard, which we'll learn more about later in the film, but it's relatively good foreshadowing to see what's happened. See, it wasn't just that the crystal itself broke. It's that somebody actually broke it. 
That's what we're led to believe in this scene here, and which is more or less confirmed towards the end of the movie. So Kira, she decides to take him back to his home, her home, and in the meantime, we go back over into the Skeksis castle, and we see them all eating, and this is just, ugh, it's disgusting. Watching these people eat is nasty. Like, they're all, like, talking with their mouth open, there's shit hanging off their face, like, they're, it basically almost looks like that scene from Indiana Jones and uh, the Temple of Doom, you know, when the monkey's brains come out and they all get excited and all these people around them are all eating these bugs and everything all nastily, it's the same thing, especially when dessert arrives and dessert some, like, weird little puffy little thing that they just eat whole. So, they have a very decadent like lifestyle. Everybody has something different, and everybody is eating the food differently. Some are more disgusting than others, and it really shows like the class system even within these guys. Whereas the general, he's very like he's got noodles and shit hanging from his face, but he's eating it like he would be eating, I guess, kind of on the battlefield. And then you've got another guy that's like really dainty that's picking it up with like little, I don't know pins on the end of his fingers to like eat whatever he's eating and he's just eating it really small and he's also looks like he's powered up like an aristocrat um and then you've got you know what would be his right hand man that's there now and he's just kind of eating like normal well no he's got a giant fucking thing of what looks like seaweed hanging from his mouth so they all talk about basically how his people have failed he's like the garthams have never failed to get the gelflings uh and the fact that you know, Jen managed to escape from Agra's place. And then the Garthams show up and they come with the bag and everybody thinks that it's going to be a Gelfling, but it turns out to be somebody completely different. Release the Gelfling! Fools! Skeksis fools! What do you want with me? This is no Gelfling! Of course I'm no Gelfling, you putrid lizards! I'll get my eyes for you! She was with him! She helped him! Where is he? Gone! Gelfling gone! Stupid Gartham! You want Gelfling? Why not ask me? No! Easier to send your crab brain soldiers! Burn my home! Now, home gone! Gelfling gone! Nothing but over! Moldy mildew, mother of mouth muck, dangle and strangled at death! Watch your tongue, Harrigan. We are lords of the crystal. Lords, not for long. What about the prophecy that a Gelfling will end Skeksis' power? He'll come, make you crawl like the worms you are. Find that Gelfling now! Crystal bats fly! Search the land, search the water, search the sky! So the Skeksis, they decide to send the crystal bats after them. And we go over and we see that Kira and Jen and Fizgig are all inside of a boat going through some type of river. She starts to sing. She's extremely tone deaf. Like, it's bad. Like, I don't mean to make fun of anybody, but 
Come on. Well, yeah, I do. I make fun of everybody any most of the time that I do this podcast. But come on. Like, it sounds really terrible. And then he starts playing to the flute to her singing because, you know, of course, he wants to get some of that Gelfling poon because he hasn't seen another Gelfling. And what is he going to do? Fuck a mystic? Nobody fucks a mystic. They're all dudes. Well, I guess you could if you really wanted to. But if you wanted to repopulate your society, you know... Unless they got mystical, mystic powers that, again, can turn jizz in a cup into more Gelflings. This is the only way that you're going to get more Gelflings, okay? So, while they're traveling along the water, a crystal bat flies above them, which Kira recognizes and then uses her slingshot to shoot it down. She thinks that she's killed it, but she only knocked it unconscious for the little bit, and it pops out of the water and it sees where they're going. She brings Jen back over to the village to meet the podling people that helped raise her. Uh, and in thanks, I guess, I don't get why this happens other than we need to have a party. Like, at least it's better than an Ewok party because, you know, Ewok party does stop. Uh, so here we have the podlings going and they're starting to pod- party and celebrate the fact that they've met another Gelfling. That's what I'm assuming that it is. Uh, and then they're happy for Kira because, hey, this is somebody that you can actually be with for the rest of your life, I guess. What if they didn't get along? Like, what if they just hated each other right off the bat? I mean, do you really... It's like when they put two pandas in a cage because there aren't a whole lot of pandas in the world and need to repopulate the panda population and the pandas don't like each other. Like, what if these two Gelflings happen to be... the? They, well, they are the last two Gelflings that exist in the entire world... And yet, they don't want anything to do with each other. Like, that's it. I, You know what? What if he finds out after he meets the female Gelfling that, hey, uh, you know what? I am not into female Gelflings. I'm into male Gelflings or mystics. Or she says the same thing. No, I'm really just into podlings and I want to have a podling baby. Though maybe she can't. Who knows? But it's kind of an odd situation when you really think about it. That they're the last two and of course they've got to be together. So... As they're partying, Jen, he's still trying to talk with Kira to explain exactly what he needs to do. And he explains that this, you know, grand whatever it's called is coming up soon. You know the three suns in the sky? They're going to come together soon. It's called the great, the great something or other. It's a prophecy. And he told me that I must find the shard and that everything must be done before the three suns join in one. And that's all. And then he died. That's just it. I don't know. I found the shard. But you don't know what to do with it. (laughs) So everybody gets down some more. And I have to say, these podlings really do know how to party. I mean, I was expecting it to be like that, like I said, that Ewok bullshit. But it turns out that actually, you know what? They do party pretty hard. We have guys jumping out of, uh, you know, what seems to be barrels of booze. uh, Jumping off the walls and, and everything. And... Jen joins in by playing his flute until the Gartham attack. That Gartham break down the walls and start capturing all the podlings, throwing them into the little barriers. And Kira, Fizgig, and Jen, they do manage to escape. Once they get to the outskirts of the city, Jen, well, heartfully so, blames himself for everything happening. And really, it truly is all Jen's fault. It's all my fault. It's Gexus. He saved us from his own Gartham. 
first Dolgris, then your village. Uh, oh. I wish I'd never heard of this shard. Nogin! Oh, Jan, they hurt your arm. Here, this moss will make it better. Wasn't your fault. The Gratham have always come. Okay, just because they always come doesn't mean that it's his not his fault, right? I mean, he's truly correct. Like they're after him. The only reason the Augur's place got torn apart was the fact that he was there and they were searching after him. He's got the shard of the dark crystal now, and he's gonna fix the whole thing. But they're gonna chase after him because. He has it, and he's the one of prophecy, so it's all his fault. Yeah, let him accept blame for this. And so, he throws away the fucking crystal like a little bitch, instead of just dealing with the fact that, hey, you know what, maybe I need to man up and actually fulfill this prophecy. And they go to sleep for the night. And she does hail him with some of the moss, because he got a little bit of a boo-boo on his arm, or something like that. And in the morning, they wake up, and he contemplates why exactly he is doing this. And he walks over into what appears to be an old, like, run-down city that used to be a Gelfling city. Kira, she goes over, and she picks up the shard, and she walks into the city as well. She sees the images on the walls, and she sees a throne where she sits down and pretends that she's the queen of all the Gelflings. Well, she just kind of sits in an area where... You know, probably somebody that was a ruler sat there once before. She's not really smug or anything about it. She's just a little inquisitive and damsel and distressy. So, uh, Jen, he calls over to Kira because he sees some old ancient writings on the wall. And because he's been taught to read and write by the mystics, he's able to decipher what the writing on the wall actually says. Now, also in this scene, we get to see, because right before they escaped and right before the Gartham actually got them, they did get some help from Chamberlain. He popped up and he told them not to follow them at all. And Chamberlain does show up in the scene after he explains, well, Jen explains to Kira what exactly that writing means. Kira? Kira, look here. Just look at this. That, that looks just like the shard. What does it mean? What are those funny marks? Oh, this is all writing. What's writing? Words that stay. My master taught me. Oh. When single shines the triple sun, what was sundered and undone shall be whole, the two made one, by Gelfling hand or else by none. By Gelfling hand? Do you know what that means, Kira? Wait. This is a piece of the dark crystal. Then that's what my master meant. Yes. I have to put it... You have to heal the... The dark crystal. Prophecy! Jen! Stay! Stay! No! Stay! Stay, M friend! Stay, M friend! Prophecy! Prophecy caused all this trouble! That prophecy? Yes! That's why Skeksis killed Gelfling? Yes! Yes! Bad mistake. Skeksis afraid. Fear Gelfling. But you're Skeksis. But I am friend. Save you from Gartham. Why? Don't listen to him. It's a trick. No, please. Must listen. I'm outcast. If I make peace, I'm outcast no more. 
Will you stop the Gotham attacks? Yes, please. Come to the castle. Please, show them you want peace. Show them Gelflings will not harm us. Please, please, please. Jen! No! Come, please. Please, yes, please. Yes. No! Come on, Kira. No! Wait! Wait! Please? Now, I haven't talked a whole lot of Chamberlain and his voice. His voice actor, to some, probably is not the best in the world, and you really don't get a feeling for some of the pieces that I absolutely love about him. And the one thing I do love about him is his little whimper. Like, I don't know why. It just, maybe it's because of the feelings that I get when I first hear it. Because it's one of the first things that you hear. Hmm. Like, it's so good and it's so perfect and it just brings like i know what's coming next when i see it and even though he's cowardly and craven and he just wants to have the power and he just wants to be at the top of everything he's still i think a well-designed character um i like him so much i don't know why you shouldn't like this character. Like, he's just the, he's one of the guys that's just gonna help one move the story along, but at the same time, he's only really here to get back what he believes is his, which is his, uh, uh, you know, autocracy, as well as his position within the Skeksis society, right? And so here he's he's pretty much you can't believe what this guy is going to be saying, right? Sure, yeah. If, if I get peace between the Gelflings, and no, you want to capture him to kill him. And honestly, Kira knows right away what exactly he's going to do. And even though Jen, he's a little bit like I don't know, believing in a country bumpkin type of way, he doesn't. He feels that he's got a closer connection to you know Kira than he does to. Chamberlain here and then he decides to run away and they manage to slip down the hill and get away from Chamberlain so they decide that they need to go to the castle where all the Skeksis are because they need to basically fix the dark crystal that shard is a piece of it and if they fix that piece then it should bring back peace to the land rather than just giving in to Chamberlain so now that they decided to actually go to the castle where the Dark Crystal is, they had to figure out a way to get over there. And Kirish uses her magical animal powers to call these giant fucking rabbit things called Landstriders. These are relatively... They're okay puppets, right? Like, at least the design of them. It looks really cool. It's basically people on stilts that are walking around with the costumes on top of them. That part is actually pretty amazing and very, very impressive. Just the kind of look of them is just kind of eh. Like, this is one of the things where I think it's a limitation of what they could create to make sure that these people could be mobile inside of these, like, costumes. At the same time, make them kind of look like some type of animal. So they kind of look like rabbits with giant fucking legs. Um, And there's a mother, there's a father, and there's a son. And so they decide to whisk off towards the castle. 
We go back inside, and this is where we see Scientist, one of the few Skeksis that actually has quite a bit of lines in the movie. And he's in his little laboratory, and you don't really get a good look at him right away, and you do a little more later on, but what makes him different than everybody else, he's got like weird, almost cybernetic-style like implants on the side of his head. He's got these tubes and this eye that's kind of weird that looks kind of like a robotic eye. It's very strange, but to show... like. The type of person that he is, right? He's a scientist, so he's modified himself, I guess, in some way, shape, or form, even though it really means nothing to the film as a whole. So he's gotten some of the podlings that they've captured. Now, it's not the ones that they're currently bringing that the Gartham recently captured. It's ones that are actually on site, I guess. And so inside his laboratory, he's running his experiments to drain the essence out of the podlings, and that goes to the Emperor. Silence, animals! Don't eat, little potling! Don't hurt! We just want to drain your living essence. Then you can be the same as the other potlings here. A slave. Open the wall! Out there's the great shaft of the castle. Position the reflector. The reflector will capture the beams of the dark crystal floating high above. Look into the reflector, podling. Feel the power of the dark crystal. The beam will rid you of your fears, your thoughts, your vital essence. Mm. Ah. You're very lucky, slave. Only the emperor can drink your essence. So this is the other part of this film that truly freaks me out because the puppetry and even the stop motion work that's done in this scene is done really well. See, he sticks the podling into the little uh, seat that looks out into the void that, well, it's not really a void, but the chasm that's there within the uh, castle where the dark crystal sits above and there's basically that fiery pit that's down below. And he's got this like refractor beam uh and it kind of looks like another giant crystal that basically shines the light from the dark crystal over into the room where they're at, and it shines the people right in their eyes. Now, we know that the Skeksis, they get sustenance or life force or whatever it is from the sun when it hits the crystal and then it hits them in the eyes. It does the exact opposite to everybody else. What it does is when it hits this guy, it starts draining his life force out of his body where he becomes a shell of a man that he used to be, or shell of a podling, let's say. And so... His eyes, they slowly start to turn, like, purple, like bright purple. And his face goes from being full to being gaunt. And you see that breathing of the puppet, like, get faster and faster till it finally slows down. And you see his mouth, it just trembles a little bit. It is 
fantastic that a puppet can portray all of this fear to the point that he portrays none. It was really freaky. I remember as a kid seeing this scene and just being like, oh my god, like that poor thing is that this is happening to him. Uh, and even the transformation, it's like watching that one scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark when all the ghosts get out and you see the Nazi guy's face kind of melt. It's not that extreme, but as a kid, I felt it was something similar. Like, I had to look away, that it was just so disturbing. And so he gets the life force from him, the guy has become a husk, and he just basically has white hair and white eyes, and he's become a slave, and scientist gives over the essence to General, the new emperor. And General goes and drinks it, and he starts to turn youthful, then all of a sudden he goes back to his old self, because he it doesn't sustain him like it would a Gelfling source. And I guess they used a lot of Gelflings to sustain their lifestyle for the longest time. So maybe instead of just killing off all of them, which eventually I guess they did, they captured them and then basically drained them of their life. But if they drain them of their life, did they drain and kill them? Or, you know, are there still some that are left? Or whatever else is going on. Cutting back over, we see that the mystics, they've basically been making their way across the land. Right? They heard the call of the crystal. It's time for them to leave. And now they are also going towards the tower where uh, all of our Skeksis friends are. We see that... uh, Jen and Kira, they've arrived, and they see the group of uh, podlings that were captured by the Gartham, and so they start to attack with the giant land striders. And there's a battle between rabbit and bug, which is okay, but eventually the land striders completely lose to the Gartham. And they manage to free all the podlings that were there and get them to run away, but the Gartham backed them against the cliff. See, they weren't able to use the bridge to go over, and so Kira grabs Jen and they jump off the cliff, and it's revealed that J- Kira has wings. I was going to say Jen, but boys don't have wings, women have wings, and fuck, I want wings. Wouldn't that be just, like, really cool to be able to jump off things and flex your back and, woo, you can float down? Well, that's what she's able to do. And they find another entrance into the castle. Now, Kira, originally, Jen told Kira, look, you stay here. This is my deal. I'll take care of this. And she's like, no, I want to go with you and see this through the end. That's great. But now, all of a sudden, that he wants to actually go into the castle, she's like, I don't want to go. It's like, make up your mind. I mean, I'd I'd hate to see what happens when you you guys finally decide to go out on a date. And he's like, hey, it's shrimp and fucking lobster fest over at Red Lobster. Why don't we go there? Oh, yeah, that sounds great. And then you show up. No. It smells like death in there. Well, of course it smells like death in there. You got fucking dead shrimp and fucking lobster that are going to be thrown into a guy gem fucking pot and it's going to taste fucking delicious, okay? So just deal with it. Oh, I would love some unlimited shrimp right now. That would be so good. Anyway, so they decide that they're actually going to go inside the castle and she decides to follow along with him. As they're going along the hallways, again, she really, really doesn't want to be in this place because, as I said, she smells death. Which way now? I want to go back. I smell death here. I know. But we have no choice. (gasps) Skeksis! I knew you would come. Do not be afraid. I am here to help you. Yes. Come, show them. Gelflings live with Skeksis together in peace. Ah! 
also my hand. So here we get our confirmation that both the mystics and the Skeksis are connected to each other. Because when, and I apologize for being a little louder than it needs to be, but um, when Jen goes in and he takes the crystal shard and he stabs Chamberlain in the hand, and then that's when it comes over to the mystic after you see the blood flowing from Chamberlain's hand, it also flows from the mystic hands on the same, or actually on the opposite side, I think. It might be the same hand, it might be the opposite side, because one's good, one's evil, and so it would make sense if it was flipped. If it's the same, then whatever, it's, it is what it is. But nonetheless, you see that he basically has, uh, you know, the the two of them are basically connected together in some way, shape, or form. Uh, we see him too. He gets mad, so he tries to kill Jen and knocks everything down and drags Kira away. Fizzgig tries to follow, but she says no, stay there with him, and he stays until Jen is basically able to get up. Meanwhile, we see Chamberlain. He brings over Kira into the throne room of the Emperor, and basically he's trying to make his peace by showing that he's captured the Gelfling. Royal Sire, I bring you Gelfling. I, I have done this. I have caught her. I bring you the Gelfling. I was wounded. I suffered horrible, searing pain. Alive, Gelfling. <laughs> kill her! We are sworn to kill all Gelfling! No! She's mine! No, but sir, you could drink her essence. Because of the prophecy, we must kill the Gelfling! No! First we take her essence, then kill! <laughs> So basically they decide to go against the wishes of just killing every Gelfling because of course if they drain the Gelfling's life force, Kira's in this case, then it'll actually be able to sustain him and have him be younger once again. And that sounds great to fucking General and honestly if I was in his position I would probably think the same thing too. Shit. We can just drain her life force and fucking, you know, make me younger at the same time and then fucking kill her off. And now if it fulfilled the thing for the prophecy, in fact, the great conjunction is probably happening just a little bit. And if I can just get the life force and then do the conjunction, who gives a shit anyway? Because how is she going to stop me? Like, they don't even know how the fucking Gelfling's going to do it. They just know that the Gelfling is responsible for this whole thing. And he didn't even double tap to check to see if... Jen was dead or not. Instead, he basically, you know, said, okay, well, I knocked a bunch of shit over on top of him. This happens to be the only one that's left that I can fucking see, so this has to be the end of the prophecy. And then he doesn't even want to kill her, he wants to keep her. I don't get that. Just fucking, like, show him, kill him, get back in your good graces, which he does, so he gets all of his clothing back. Well, his nice clothing. He's been wearing something the entire time. Uh, Scientist takes her down into the laboratory i guess and straps her to the machine and starts using the technology against her we see that jen has actually survived and that he's now following Fizzgig to go see maybe where kira was taken and see if uh, or where exactly the dark crystal is 
Meanwhile, back over in the lab, we see that Kira, she's all strapped to the machine. She's ready to have her essence start sucked out of her, where we see that Agra is actually captured inside the lab as well. She tells Kira that she's the one that can use the animals, basically to allow her to escape, and she shouts something that's a lot more uh, understandable than whatever the fuck the boy shouts at the end of the never-ending story, and basically gets all the animals to come to her rescue and attack scientists. Now, eventually, they overwhelm him, and he keeps backing up to the point that he falls down the pit into the fires below the dark crystal therefore killing himself and also killing a mystic at the same time so that's fucked up kira you killed one of the good guys by getting rid of one of the bad guys she has all the animals help her escape and she goes over to where agra is who happens to be missing her eye now when they took out her eye i'd have no fucking idea but it happens to be over there on the counter uh, instead of letting agra outside of the cage she kind of asks her what's going on and agra tells her about the great conjunction too late, Delfling! You come too late! The Great Conjunction is at hand! Now the Skeksis will have power over the stars! Uh, when is the Conjunction? Very soon, three suns touch. Jeff. Oh. Go, Delfling! I fear to death. Okay, isn't it pretty fucked up that Kira doesn't even bother to try to help her out? And then at the same time, it's like, she's just like, okay, well, go ahead and fucking help him. Don't worry about me. Like, I'll figure out a way out of here, which eventually she does, honestly. We cut over to Jen, and he's trying to find his way to where the crystal is, but he manages to fall. Jen is so fucking useless, to be honest with you. There's a couple of things that happen at the end of this film that probably wouldn't need to happen if he was fucking, like... Not a useless fucking character, because he falls into a pit of fucking Gartham, okay? And so they all attack him, he's able to dodge and get away, and those fuckers can bust through anything, because they bust through the side of the wall of the pit where the dark crystal is below, and he's able to escape through the hole that they create. He climbs up to the lab, and he sees Agra there and asks basically where Kira is. She tells him, and she's rummaging through the stuff, she managed to get her eye back, but that the Great Conjunction's about to happen, and you need to go to where the Dark Crystal is. So he flies off, and he actually makes it to the room where the Dark Crystal resides. Now, uh, on the opposite side of the room, and they're on the second floor here, he sees Kira come into vision. And he kind of wants to go over to help her, but then all the Skeksis form at the bottom of the room. They start getting ready for the ritual of the Great Conjunction, and all of a sudden, middle of nowhere, Fizzgig fucking shows up. He rolls his little fucking furry ass down the hall, he sees Kira, gets all fucking excited, and then starts barking fucking wild... It's so fucking ridiculous that the reason that she gets found out is because her, like, dog thing decides that he's too excited and can't shut the fuck up. It reminds me of my dog every time something walks by the fucking house here. Oh, is, was that a cat? Oh, was that a fucking tumbleweed? Oh, a little fly comes... It's fucking annoying. Like, <laughs> this is what fucking ruins it for Kira, and so she's found out by the Skeksis below. So they all start trying to go over to her, but they really can't do anything about it because she's above them and they're below and what exactly they're going to do because they don't really have any like magic powers or anything like that. And that causes Jen to like yell out being fucking useless again and basically giving away the fact that he's over there. So they get all like excited that there's two fucking Gelflings. So 
he decides that he's got to finish this, so he jumps over onto the top of the Dark Crystal and loses the fucking shard. The shard drops down to where all the other Skeksis are, and that causes Kira to jump down after the shard as well. She grabs the shard, and then this happens. She has the shard! Take it from her! Watch out, Kira! Kira! Behind you! Hey! No! Leave her alone! Give us the sword and you can go free! Yes! Just don't harm her! Rujin! Heal the crystal! Kira! Now, I should say that Fizzgate tried to make things up and tried to stop them from doing something, but one of the Skeksis grabs him and throws him in the fucking pit. I laughed so hard when I saw that. Uh, And then he is found by Augra Below, and she's able to actually save him, so he doesn't die. He's saved in the end. Whatever. But poor Kira, she does get killed by one of the Skeksis when she throws the crystal over to Jen. Jen takes the opportunity because he's so pissed off that she's dead, and as the suns all converge and the Great Conjunction begins, he slams home the crystal shard into the dark crystal which then gets blasted by the sun's rays uh the mystics at this point all show up and they are of course the good half of an entirely whole being see when the dark crystal split it split everybody up into two in fact we're gonna let agra first say and then we're gonna talk to these new beings that have now been made whole What was sundered and undone shall be whole, the two made one! And now the prophecy is fulfilled. We are again one. So basically, as I was starting to explain before they kind of talked about it, the world, when it was torn asunder, and they were the ones that broke the crystal, and we got that image earlier in this movie when Jen looked into the crystal itself. 
So either there was one rogue one amongst them, or they felt like this was just the way to go, and this was a thousand years ago. And that happened to split these beings, which were, I guess, omnipotent immortal beings, uh, into two different races. The good race being the mystics, the bad race being the Skeksis. So there are two parts of the whole. And if they had only just come together a long time ago, they could have been basically one person forever, and prosperity would rule through the land. So instead, and with the entire fucking, like, fortress has completely collapsed around them. The black has basically, of the walls and all of the beasts, when the Garthams die, it looks really great. Like, they all, like, break apart into different pieces. And we see that the two forms come back together and form what... I don't know. They're supposed to be like ethereal, weird beings, but I've never really liked the way the look of these combined beings look. Who, you know, again, this is one of those things where it's like... They have a name, but it's never really talked about. And they're called, I guess, the Ursex. And this is something that you got to look up. And so they explain, you know, they mistakenly shattered the crystal. But it doesn't look like it was a mistake. It looks like they actually, like somebody actually slammed it on there. And uh, this, of course, you know, now that they brought everything back together... Everything's happy and, and the land is starting to prosper once again. And as a thank you, they decide that they're going to bring Kira back to life. So Jen does hug her close and you can tell that they're already starting to fall in love, even though they've only been together for a couple of days. But I think there's something about repopulating the species, like I said before, that's probably bringing them close together. And so we have one last thing uh, and one last discussion with the Ursex. And then the credits begin to roll. Now we leave you the crystal of truth. Make your world in its light. And so that was The Dark Crystal. Now, it's definitely a fantasy film, but it has some really great visuals that, like I said, screwed me over as a kid. 
Uh, Agra is one of them. Now, you can go to thedarkcrystal.com, and they have an entire, like, timeline, and they've got a lot more stuff that you can learn about the film. Like, you can actually learn the times of the world, what happened with Agra, how she had sons, how she was blinded by the Ursex, uh, when they first arrived at the first great conjunction. All this stuff is there, but you don't get a lot of it explained in this film in general. There's a lot of things, it's just kind of like, presented to you and there like you have to go into the lore to not i wouldn't say truly appreciate it but i think if you were my age now or even in your 20s or even in your teens if you're listening to this for some reason um and you want to see this film like there's going to be a lot of things that you're going to be like what huh what and you're not necessarily going to get it but as a kid you just totally accept it and you're like okay the base story is fine Everything's great with it, but the expanded universe of it makes it so much more in-depth than maybe it needed to be, or maybe it needs to be in the film, but you're just trying to hit an hour and 30 minute runtime with this thing. Regardless of that, it's really just a little gripe. Again, like I said, you can get everything you need from this film. You don't need to know the names of places, you don't need to know about Agra's sons or these different ages that happen in the world of the Dark Crystal. Fuck, just enjoy it. Enjoy the masterful puppetry that they've done and these practical effects and these sets and these designs of these costumes that are fucking brilliant and fantastic. It is truly a magical film. Uh, and it really doesn't have a lot for me to nitpick on it, to be honest with you. Uh, like I said, the, the biggest things is really that if, if I had to take away the things that I didn't like as much, maybe as I did when I was a kid, and I didn't really notice, would have to be Kira and Jen. I feel like they're not the most fleshed out characters in the world. They're just kind of thrown into it, and that's it. I get a lot more emotive connection to the fucking Skeksis than I do. And the Mystics, what the fuck is the point other than that they're the good halves of the fucking Skeksis? There is no other point to having the Mystics in this fucking film at all. Like... They are non-existent. I barely talked about them. You know why? Because you only see them in a couple passing scenes with them traveling. And then when they show up, there's a scene where the Gartham try to stop them. And this is how you know they're connected too, because they're able to control the Gartham. Because the Gartham somehow is only able to control by the Ursex or the Skeksis or whoever. But it's such a useless, pointless scene because they're useless, pointless characters. It would have been fine if they didn't exist and this was all to basically stop the Skeksis. I would been totally fine with that that they got raised by these people and he has a you know he's been conditioning him in a way to fulfill a destiny but he really hasn't at the same time because he tells him his destiny at the last possible minute like dude i'm dying this is what your life actually is what you know so that kind of sucks it it could have been expanded upon just a little bit more and i think it would have been a little more entertaining than well I'm not saying a little more entertaining. It would have been a little more insight than what it was, or a little more fleshed out maybe in the story is what I'm trying to say. But overall, I mean, this film is just good. It's just fantastic to watch with your kids. I think that there's a lot of messed up things in it and things that might scare them, uh, things that definitely scared me when I was little. But overall, it's such a fantastical story, and it's such a awe-inspiring like set pieces that... You need to see it. So, um, and I really wish at the beginning of the podcast I said you should go watch the movie before you listen to this. But if you didn't, 
please go out there and watch it. Like I said, you can watch it in like a shrunken window on YouTube if you just don't want to rent it because you're still a little wary about it and you're not sure. But if you've never seen this film, you owe it to yourself to go out and see it. So overall, uh, and I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I'm going to give it a 1 out of 5 on the gore. It's weird, but it's specifically for the eyeball because it's so well done. It's so creepy and disgusting that it deserves to have that one point for that. Other than that, you know, it's kind of disgusting in the one scene, but there's nothing really gory at all in this film. And it's not like the eyeballs dripping blood or eye juice or whatever like that. It just looks like a regular eye. And it's the one of the first things that you see right in your fucking face. Um... The crap factor, it's a 2 out of 5. Some of the acting's a little wooden. I don't really like the guy that plays Jen or the lady that does the Kira voice. I don't think they're the greatest in the world. But I fucking love Chamberlain and even the general. He's like, eh, and some of the Skeksis. But they're good for what they are. Uh, I love Chamberlain, uh, period. Like, I think that guy did an excellent job with the voice and the smarminess and everything that needs to be that character, I think is perfect. I think the lady does. Agra deserves fucking accolades for her role in this film because she sounds great and the puppet looks great. She matches everything up perfectly and I'm glad that they went with her. Um, and the narrator, you know, it's, it's fine for what it is, but, and then some of the puppets are not the grass. Some of the green screens that you see, they don't really hold up like they did back then when you're looking at it in standard definition versus the high definition shit that you can see nowadays. So it's a little, you know, jarring when you see it nowadays, but it's not truly totally crappy. These are just gripes. So maybe it's more like a 1.5 instead of a 2 out of 5. Uh, fun factor, it's a 5 out of 5. This is a fun film, and for me, it left me with my fucking mouth agape with a giant fucking smile the entire time. I was still rooting for things, just like with The Witches. Like, I was still rooting for things to happen. I've seen this movie so many goddamn times that I'm still like, oh no, Kira died, you know, and I knew it was coming. And it's not say I got sad about it or anything. And that's kind of maybe one of those crap factors is that I really don't care that she died because I assumed that she'd come back. Um, but maybe it affected me more as a kid than it does now. But it's kind of a weak plot device, to be honest with you, because fucking Jen was useless. So... It, but it's overall, it's really fun from the practical effects to the sets, uh, just to the little things. There's so many little things that you can see, especially the scene where he's being like contemplated and he's sitting in the forest. There's so many creature puppets in that scene. It's ridiculous that they made all of this just to do this little fucking two, three minute scene. That's it. They made all these little animals and made this wonderful fucking set. It is absolutely amazing and it's worth your time. So, Overall, Nostalgia Glasses on completely 100%. I'm going to give this 5 out of 5 Agra eyeballs. It is something that I think everybody needs to see. And for the end of movies that freak me out as a kid, scare the shit out of me as a kid, this is a perfect ending to it. And it, again, it's more or less an excuse for me to talk about this film. So... With that said, I am going to be getting away from the kids' movies, and we're going to go back into regular horror movies again. Well, maybe not so necessarily totally horror, uh, but it's definitely something that's scary. Now, this is a film that was requested quite a while ago. 
from the Angry Dad of Angry Dad Podcast himself. Uh, that's B to the Fourth Power on Instagram and Twitter and everything that's out there, YouTube, all that stuff. And that's Ben. Um, he asked me if I would look in this movie, and I told him a while ago I would, but I had a schedule of things. And so now that I'm out of a schedule and I'm not having themes for a little while, and we are going to go back to truly terrible horror movies after this film, and some people really like it, some people really don't, I haven't seen this movie in a while, and I always remember that the last part of it bores the shit out of me. So we'll see what happens in the James Woods classic, Videodrome. Why would anybody watch a scum show like Videodrome? Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? Ren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He has been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw Videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination. To the point that it will change human reality. Soon, his visions will coalesce and become uncontrollable flesh. Videodrome is seducing Max Wren. Please, come to me now. Come to Nikki. And Max Wren can do nothing to stop it. What makes you think I need help? None of our test subjects has returned to normality. Television can change your mind. Videodrome will change your body. Long live the new flesh. It will shatter your reality. Videodrome. Videodrome. Starring Deborah Harry and James Woods. A shocking new vision from the creator of Scanners. Coming soon to a theater near you from Universal Pictures. So long live the flesh. We're going to be talking about Videodrome next. And it's, uh, you know, it's a David Cronenberg film. So expect the practical effects and the body modification stuff to be very, very intense. I believe that it is available. Um, it is available on Amazon if you have stars or if you have stars in general, you can watch it. Uh, you can link up your Amazon Prime account so you can watch it that way. Or I think you can find it on YouTube. You can definitely rent it on iTunes and YouTube and Amazon as well. But if you have some type of provider and you have stars, that might be the best way to watch it right now, uh, at least at the time of the recording of this podcast. So, And that's a film, too, that I do recommend that you start watching before you listen to the podcast itself. So, as always, you can find the podcast on Twitter at t underscore t underscore podcast facebook.com slash terrible terror podcast email the show terrible terror podcast at gmail.com and you can follow us on things like the horror amino uh instagram at terrible terror podcast and all that fun stuff so i hope you've liked this little retrospective on films that scared me as a kid and i hope to see you next time for videodrome thanks for listening oh go out there also check out the universal monster pods that are out there like my creature from the black lagoon or check out the Invisible Men from Paranormal Pativity. So as this gets louder, I will fade out. <laughs> Till next time. <laughs>